must ask before I begin, anyone here like Star Wars? Anyone? I do too. I know this is a little bit off with timing because Jurassic World is the current blockbuster and soon there will be another blockbuster, I'm sure next week or the week after that and so on and so forth. But the only reason I bring it up is because the original trilogy holds one of my favorite lines. When all seemed too good for the rebellion, it is Admiral Akbar who yells out very loud with the only line anyone ever knows, it's a trap. Now apparently Pastor Milky used that last week, but I wasn't here, so I'll use it again. It's a trap! Now such words spoken a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away could be spoken not so long ago, only 2,000 years ago. Not so far away, not another galaxy, just the other side of the world. As we read this gospel today, we hear this opening salvo of words fired with a mock innocence by the Herodians aimed to cause Jesus' downfall. And I, maybe you're like me, want to yell out at Jesus, it's a trap. It's a trap. Yet the Herodians aren't even the one at fault because it's the, the Pharisees who put the Herodians up to it. The Pharisees are very crafty. They know if they can deal with things of authority and the government that they can perhaps get someone else to do their bidding. So they give this question that the Herodians themselves would never uh, walk away from, but would embrace. A question which would force Jesus to either accept or reject the authority the Roman government held over the Jewish people. Would Jesus recognize the structure of authority to which they were all subject? They start out, Teacher, we know you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. What garbage. What utter garbage. Yeah, does he truly teach the way of God? Yes, but they don't mean it. Have you ever met someone like that? They tell you what they think you want to hear to butter you up and then undercut you, stab you in the back, try to get at you. It's exactly what they're doing. Try to catch Jesus off guard. So they continue. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now Jesus was a known rebel. Some of his followers were called zealots, which meant they were violently opposed and had an utter disrespect for all given authority. And the Pharisees believed Jesus would either have to abandon this pious quest he had, claiming he was God, or he would have to offer some word of insurrection that would allow the Pharisees to involve the Roman authorities to take him down and dispose of Jesus. Now sometimes when Jesus is trapped, it says he knew this in the heart, what they were thinking and what they were saying, and he just moves on to the solution. Here Jesus actually takes a moment to call them out on it. He says, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, denarius was a coin that was about a year's wage that would have been familiar to everybody, to Jesus and all those who were gathered. A coin they would have had in their hands many times, twirled it between their fingers, whatever else they would have done, just as you and I, for instance, would look at a quarter. So it's no surprise that they know whose face is on it. Who's on the quarter? Who's on the quarter? Who's on the quarter? George Washington. Who's on the dollar bill? Same answer. George Washington. George Washington is the answer. How many of you want a piece of paper with Ben Franklin's face on it? Yeah, okay, so do I. That's the $100 bill. Okay, we know this because we see it. So when Jesus says, 
Whose likeness and inscription is this? They don't even have to look at it. They know it's Caesar. Now pay close attention to what Jesus says next because he not only disarms the trap, but he forces all those listening to pause and consider what Jesus is saying and even who Jesus is. Now in the face of every coin was Caesar, but then there would be an inscription around the edge lest you forget who your leader is. And these inscriptions would read Caesar, father of the country, or high priest, or some of them even would call him the divine one or even the son of God. Now Jesus, when he gets this coin, he doesn't mock Caesar. He doesn't deny Caesar's claim to any of these things or even any claim to divinity. He shocks us by saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Stop there for a second. That coin bears the face of Caesar? Give it to him. Why are you so obsessed with clinging to it? Why are you drawn towards worshiping money in and of itself? And I think it's easy for us, and maybe we don't think about this, I think it's easy for us when something we hold in our hand and something we hold so dear bears the image of another and we see it again and again and again, it's easy for us to even idolize or make a myth of that individual as if they themselves are a god. To each coin we cling to, we give thanks to the one whose image is imprinted upon it. As we're afraid to let it go. Jesus, in speaking these words, shows a deep respect for authority. And rightly so, as we'll find out in a little bit in the reading we hear from Paul in Romans. While also rebuking our obsession to cling to money. This idea that it's my money because I earned it, I did the work, it belongs to me. He's saying, it's not your money. Is that your face on the coin? No. Give it back to who it belongs to. Give it back to Caesar. And he then continues with this little phrase. He says, and to God, give to God the things that are God's. Now, God's face is not inscribed on that coin. It does not bear his name. It does not bear his image. It does not bear his likeness. It bears nothing of God, the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nothing. But he made it. No, Jesus did not work in the mint when he was a young child. That's not what I'm talking about. He made the very material that coin is imprinted upon. He made that. He made the very hands that were used to create the mold that was used to create the coin. The very hands that coin now rested in, God's. Give to God what is God's. Everything, everything is God's. The food which is so abundantly given us out of the ground of the earth that Cain failed to recognize as a gift from God. The birds of the air, the lilies of the field, dress more gloriously than Solomon in all of his splendor, a gift from God. The gift of life that Sarah herself laughs at and believes impossible. All gift from God. All belonging to God. The sea and the mountains, the valleys and the rivers, and all that is within them. All they hold. It is all from God and his good gift to his people, to us. All belong to God. Surrender to God what is God's. But more precious than all those things is our hearts that he made. 
And so trying to take this all in, trying to understand this all, they marvel at him. They're stunned. They're shocked. They're the ones that find themselves now trapped, unable to move, unable to rebute what he just said. Marvel. But it goes even farther. Interestingly enough, the authority that Herod wielded, it's a gift from God. The authority wielded by Caesar, the oppressor of the Jewish people, a gift from God. See, God's not passive. He didn't start creation and then walk away. He didn't start creation and then say, well, hopefully man can figure it out. He did not do that. God is active. He works in ways we cannot understand and perceive and often see or make sense of. The world often appears to be more in chaos than order. Often it looks like death and disease went out more than life. How often in your own life do you feel more empty than you do full? Or how often in your life do you feel God's absence more than you feel his presence? See, he often doesn't become as tangible as a coin, let's say. He often works in mysterious ways we don't quite understand. And so we wander away from him because he isn't helping me. He isn't getting me ahead. He doesn't even appear concerned with the things that are troubling me. So why should I spend time with him if he doesn't seem even real or at the very least interested? And so how easy God becomes no longer a priority, but second, third, fourth, or maybe even just shoved in the corner of a basement closet. And desiring to speak about something and no longer wanting to speak about God who appears absent. We lend our voices to causes and to issues and to positions. And we cry out loudly about injustice behind the glow of our computer screens. Rarely with respect. Rarely with seeing the dignity of another person. Another human being. In a digitized world, all we see is the machinations of men. And we, we fail to see the image and likeness of God imprinted on each each person. And perhaps it's even been so long since we've heard God's voice that we began to believe the lie he has nothing to say in a modern 21st century world. And so we, like so many others, just started speaking the false truths of this world. Jesus doesn't call us to champion some cause. He calls us to submit to authority. And before we start saying, well, he doesn't understand the authority we're under, he told this to a group of people who were under Herod, who would massacre people, killed his own family to establish the throne, and Caesar, who would do the same thing soon to the Christians, let alone to Jesus himself. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. He calls us to pay taxes in the Romans reading. He calls us to pay fair prices, to to pay fair prices in in revenue to those who, who work. And we buy their goods. He tells us to respect others. He tells us to honor others. And he says, Paul says, if we don't cheat people, we owe them nothing. We owe them nothing except love. We always owe them love. Well, they didn't earn it. They didn't merit it. They don't deserve it. Yes, neither do you. And I still love you, all of you. And more important than that, God loves you. 
God loves you. Maybe for some of us today, that's something we really need to hear. His love is endless. And he calls us to receive that love and in doing so, become loving of our neighbor. All those commandments you heard God speak, it boils down to love your neighbor. Don't harm him. Don't hurt him. Don't neglect him. Don't wreck him or reject him. Love him. Care for him. Give of yourself for him. And who is your neighbor? Everyone. Every person is your neighbor. Even the person in the pew next to you right now, even if they took your pew today, and I know, how dare them? Your neighbor. Your neighbor. The person living in that neighboring home to you. The person living in the apartment above you as they do their P90X and jump all around, or the baby that never stops crying. The co-worker who you could hardly quote in front of your pastor because of what he says. Middle schoolers, high schoolers, your boss, your parents, mean people. How many of you know mean people? If you don't know mean people, maybe that, okay. Love them. Love them. Your senators, your mayor, your council, your president. Love them. Do them no harm. Who gave power and authority to our current president? God. Who gave power and authority to our previous president? God. I hopefully have offended all of you now. This is what Paul writes. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And Paul goes on to say, love does no wrong to a neighbor, even those who disagree with us, even those we don't understand. See, we as Christians are in a weird position. We are people of two kingdoms. First and foremost, we belong to the kingdom of God. We believe the kingdom has come and will come. We are citizens of an eternal kingdom, and that needs to be our first allegiance because the kingdoms of this world throughout all history come and go. The kingdom of God is eternal. Yet we, in God's wisdom, also live in a kingdom of this world. Specifically for us here today, the kingdom of the United States of America. And God has placed us here. His children. And he has given us this nation as a gift to us, his children. But let us not erroneously think we're the only ones. For all authority is given by God. This is the God who gave authority to the Babylonians to come through and destroy Israel, then to the Assyrians to come through and destroy the Babylons, and then to Persia, King Cyrus, to come through, bring them out, and restore the foreign king Cyrus of Persia to restore Israel to true worship of the one true God. He doesn't always work how we think he should. He doesn't always make sense to our minds, but he is always working. He is God. And all authority comes from him. So how do we as Christians heed the words of Jesus and Paul in 21st century America? Especially as we move towards the 4th of July, the celebration of our independence from those wicked Britons who we all woke up early a few weeks ago to watch the royal wedding. First of all, let us give thanks. Let us give thanks for this wonderful country we live in. Let us give thanks with great love for all the authorities God has placed 
above us, that we may see them with dignity and we may pray for them all the time. Let us care more about our relationship with God and speaking up against countless causes. It's not that we can't be active against injustice, but if that does not come from our relationship with God, it comes in the wrong way. You, child, have been formed in the image and likeness of God. Do not cling to the things of this world, to the possessions of Caesar or George Washington. Cling to God. Recognize that you yourselves are his good will and creation. And worship him first and above all things. Worship him alone for he is God. Now if I can be quite frank, it's hard to even say this all when we live in a nation and a culture that is so in love with death and the celebration of self-interest. And the more time I spend in prayer, my heart breaks around me as I, or my heart breaks as I look around me and I see how broken this world is. And there are times I say in my prayers, God, how could you possibly let this all happen? However, there's something I've learned. When God found me in my love of sin and when he finds me there still way too often, he didn't get angry with me. He didn't shout me down and humiliate me. He didn't post it on Facebook for everyone to see. He loved me. He gave himself for me. That's true love. He sent his son Jesus to bear all the anger and the hatred and the vitriol of this world in my place. He gave himself for me so that I could live. He rose from the dead so I could be his son. And you can be his sons and daughters. And now receiving that love and going out in the world, we're not going to win the hearts of others by getting angry with the culture of death we're all surrounded by. How about instead we speak in love? How about we make a proposal to the world that life is more beautiful than death? That love, the giving of self, true love, not what the world tries to sell as love, love, the giving of self, making sacrifices for others, is better than self-interest and self-preservation. How about we live in such a way that the world would know we have a Lord who loves us and this world, and that we love our God more than we love the world and her many things. So how do you show your love to God? How will the world see that love? Let me tell you how I show my love to, to Rachel, my wife. I make sure I work lots of late nights and I tell her how busy I am and I'm sorry I didn't have time for her. I show up to family dinner once a month just to make sure I squeeze it in. Anytime I go to the store, I forget to bring home milk. Whenever we go out, we see my movies and we go to my restaurants. I complain about her every chance I get in front of her and behind her back. And I make sure to forget every anniversary we've ever had. I spend as little time as possible with her, just enough so she knows I am breathing and have a pulse. Those of you who are single here right now, that is the key to a happy marriage. Many of you are praying for Rachel W. now. Good. She needs it. No! How do I show love to God? 
I tell him how busy I am and how sorry I am that I haven't spent enough time with him. I try to make it to his supper maybe once a month. Every time I spend my money, I spend it on me and complain when I have to spend it on him. And I complain about him all the time, that he doesn't understand the modern world we live in and have modern sensibilities and that most of his teachings are all passe now. And so I complain about him to everyone I know, about how God and Jesus just have to get with the times. And I check in with him, maybe through prayer or some other ways, just enough so he knows I have a pulse. If we treat God like an estranged neighbor, how will the world ever know he's our greatest love? Sometimes I think we love princes and principalities and the things of this world, the issues of this world, more than we love our own God. But all of those are from God. All of those are established by God, and they all come and go. The Roman Empire had a really great 800 years before they were destroyed. They come and go. They rise and fall. We give thanks for freedom in this country, but let us not forget where true freedom comes from. We give thanks for all the gifts we're afforded in this place, but let us not forget the true source of all gift. It's not George Washington. It's God. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of global struggles and national struggles and local struggles, and and even those intimate struggles of our own hearts, in the midst of all of that, there is a truth that will remain forever. There is a promise that you can cling to that never has changed throughout all of history. And that reality, that truth is that Jesus is Lord. Forever. All the other things change. Jesus is Lord. And his kingdom is eternal. And to that hope we cling to each day. As he rules and reigns over us with his love, his care, his mercy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.